what I want teachers to understand is that their job is not to squeeze a decent test score out of a kid. Mm. Um, their job is to put them on a better life trajectory. Mm. And sometimes that better life trajectory results in them staying on the planet. How do we become our best and live a life of meaning and purpose? In a world where the constant focus is on fixing what's wrong with us, we want to highlight what is right and good about you to help you live out your best every day. Hi, I'm Eloise Wellings. And I'm Rory Darkins. And this is What's Right Within. This week, we had the pleasure of speaking with Adam Voigt. Adam is one of Australia's foremost experts on education, leadership and culture. And he's just released a great new book called Restoring Teaching. Adam brings such practical wisdom and a refreshing perspective to the education space. And this conversation is super relevant to teachers and, and students and parents. However, it's also really relevant to any of us who are looking to explore what's possible for ourselves and particularly do that in relationship with others and create better cultures and better connections. This was such a, a great conversation and I'm excited to introduce Adam Voigt. Adam, welcome to the show. Welcome, Adam. Thank you, Rory and Eloise. Thank you heaps for having me. I really appreciate it. Welcome. This is such a school culture is, is your main research and your main bit. It's such a niche area. Yeah. What originally sparked your passion for this area? I think I, I, it's probably this weird curiosity that I, I, when, I, when I do speak to roomfuls of, of educators, I often ask them, you know, put your hand up if you think that school culture is important, and they all do, you know. And then the next question is, well, just keep your hand up for a moment because what I'd like to do is to call one of you out the front of the room to tell everyone what the correct definition of school culture is. <laughs> <laughs> and all the hands go down. So I was, I was fascinated by um, the notion of how is it that we got to a point where everybody says it's important and nobody knows what it is? Mm. And my, my curiosity for that probably started, I was given the, the fabulous job um, up in Darwin in the Northern Territory where Rory and I met, um, of opening a brand new school as its inaugural principle. And it became clear that getting everyone on the same page in terms of building a culture that everyone felt they were a part of and they felt membership of um, was was core business for me as a principal. That was the most important thing. So then it was about, okay, what is culture? How can I help people understand what it is so that they can work on it? And so we talk about it being a behavioural sum total. So it's basically everything that everyone who's a stakeholder in your community does. Mm. Yeah, that's your culture. And we say that there's two types of behaviours within that culture. Um, the behaviours that we encourage and we like, we love that, do more of that, that's awesome, have a sticker. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's the behaviours that we tolerate. Mm. So they're the ones that we haven't found maybe the, the will or the skill or the time to, to tackle them. Um, and so what we do in our work these days is help schools because the best school communities aren't necessarily the ones that just have no behaviours that they, they tolerate. That's mm. an unattainable goal. You know, you've got institutions built for several hundred young people whose brains aren't finished yet. You know, things are going to go <laughs> yeah. wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. but, we, but we say schools that are ready for that and have chosen their methodology for moving behaviours from the tolerate pile to the encourage pile, mm. um, that then they do that consistently, um, they're the ones that, that succeed. 
and mm. give their objectives and their programs and their goals a chance of being realised. Mm. Yeah, awesome. And um, Adam, I've been digging into your book, Restoring Teaching. Uh, so thanks so much for sending us <laughs> sending us a look at that. Um, it's really refreshing, you know, to to hear such a, a life-giving perspective around education and around, you know, um, just the whole system. And I think it's so applicable well beyond education. Yeah. You know, it's to everyday life, to any organisation or team that we're a part of. And so I'm really interested to um, to find out more about how you how you define like good culture. Like what what are we yeah. looking for with um, you know with a culture and what's the goal of a culture as well? Yeah, I think that for me, a, a, a good culture is one that uplifts every participant within it, uplifts every member within it. So I think that what happens is you cross a line at some stage in your membership of a culture where you stop being as interested in what the culture can do for me as mm. you do for what I can contribute to others. Mm. Because you start to, I think, and I think, I think one of the challenges for people that lead cultures, whether they're school, school community or, or business, even business cultures, is helping people to acknowledge or note when that line gets crossed for them. Mm. Because I think that, that's when they start to lead. And so when you get that, when you get people who actually have started to not just absorb the benefits of the culture, but contribute to that culture, you get this tribe of chiefs kind of thing going on where everyone leads. I tell people in schools that the, the unique thing about a school is that every single staff member in that school is a leader of culture, mm. wow. whether they like it or not. They're either leading the encourage pile or the tolerate pile when it comes yeah. to behaviour. They're leading because they lead young people in terms of the way that they interact every single day. Mm. You know, whether you're the lollipop lady or the principal, it's the, yeah. you, know, you are a leader of culture in that in that organisation. Mm. So I... I'm fascinated by that concept of how mm. you help people step into a culture, progress for their own benefit, and then cross a line when they start to bend, they start to contribute to the benefit of all. And I think mm. that's I just think those places to be in that are above that line are so so much fun. Yeah. Just, everything gets easy when, when everybody's mm. lifting each other up. Yeah. Maybe, um, you know, that, that's so aligned with, with what this podcast is all about, you know, around um, how do we become our best and, and live a life of meaning and purpose. And, you know, the research in positive psychology and, and humanistic psychology is, is really quite um, compelling around the fact that when we, when we, that no one does it alone. Like we, when we, if we are to become all that we uniquely are capable of becoming and we're to flourish as um, the best version of ourselves, that happens in relationship and through relationship. And so what, what's your perspective on, um, on how individuals can flourish together? Yeah, I, I think that being really intentional around some of those things that help us to flourish and help us to flourish as an acknowledgement of the way others have helped us is really mm. important. So um, my stuff in terms of schools is, but we've done a lot of work around helping young people to be, one, grateful. So when someone does help you, acknowledge mm. it. Mm. You know, do, do something that says, yeah, yep, I, now that was something that you helped me do mm. and I'm grateful for that. I love... Um, yeah. Even in the sporting world, I think that Ash Barty does that beautifully. 
Yeah. yeah. You know, whenever she wins something, she's she doesn't say I once. Everything yeah. is, is we, we, it's we, we. Because yeah. she's grateful for the fact that and she doesn't feel that she needs to hide from the fact that she didn't get there alone. Yeah. You know, she got there with a with a team. And I think that that's fabulous when young people can do that. Um, and I guess the other side of it then, because that, that's the stuff when we do something good, we want to be grateful. Mm. So that's kind of uh, behaviours that apply to the encourage pile. But then there's the tolerate pile, which means what do you do when people screw up? Because mm. mm. they're yeah. going to. Well, that's, know, that's an unavoidable part. What does the culture tell people that we mm. do when we make a mess of things? Mm. Um, I think that's a really fascinating, because I think that I believe that in a culture that encourages people to make excuses, to blame her, um, to, you know, um, run away and hide, just call in sick mm. the next day if you, if you mess something up. Yeah. I think that what happens is the shame of having screwed up never gets taken off from around your neck. Yeah. Mm. And you never do something positive about it, which means nobody thanks and congratulates you for it. Mm. Thank you. Oh. Congratulating is how you get trust. We all want trust in our organisation. So you've got to get back to what, you know, if you want trust in your organisation, what happens when people screw up? Mm. You know, do they have the chance to do something about it and move away from the shame? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's so interesting, Adam. Rory mentioned before that, the, that this, is, this area of, of culture is so relevant to so many organisations and sporting teams and, you know, every, any area that there is more than one person involved, um, you need to have a, a culture. It's critical yeah. um, to success and to, to, so that everyone can flourish. For people listening, if someone is within an organisation that has a, an already toxic culture, what, what's your advice in, in how they can change, how, how they can bring forward the, the things that they've tolerated for so long? Um, how do they start to bring about change in that, in that area? I think if you're a leader of a culture, and like this happens sometimes when people land in a new leadership position, you know, if they have changed teams or, you know, in my instance, changed schools or got a promotion into, a, into for, say, from an assistant principal in one school to being a principal in another, they get there and they go, oh, <laughs> this is what's going on <laughs> and, and things are pretty toxic. I think that there's probably a couple of things first up. Uh, number one, and I think it's a small piece, but it does come first, is the awareness piece. Mm. is to be really aware that this is what's going on and don't, don't, you don't have to sort of you know, put any mayonnaise on it. We don't have to say that it's more toxic than it is. Mm. Um, we don't have to put any sugar on it and say that mm. it's less toxic than it is. Just say yeah. what it is, really aware oh, yeah. of that. Yeah. And then, then I think the first thing for anybody in a leadership position is to model it. Mm. There is no way I believe that in an organisation, like I can't say that I'm going to lead an organisation where when people screw up, they get the opportunity to fix it so that I can thank and congratulate them. Mm. I can't do that unless I'm prepared to be the first to screw up. Mm. So putting yourself, it's not, I think, about, about making deliberate mistakes, but yeah. it's putting yourself in situations where you know they're likely mm. and, well, and being able to model for others how to screw up effectively. Yeah, yeah. I think that's such a powerful point because... Yeah. You know, both at an individual level, but also at a kind of cultural level, this this idea of failure and um, and it's so connected to to taking risks and challenging yourself, right? And so, if, if we yeah. are to to um, pursue our potential, then there's a vulnerability in that because we can't control the outcome if we're challenging ourselves. And so, yeah. I'm I'm really interested in your take on how 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 should or could we view failure 
in order to free ourselves to um, to grow optimally, but also without just sort of saying, "Hey, let's you know, let's fail." Yeah, <laughs> you know what yeah I mean? that's right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, like you're pointing out, there, failure is not about. Uh, deliberately failing because to be honest if you set out to deliberately fail and you succeed then you succeeded you didn't fail <laughs> so we're, we've got to go uh, failures are things that happen when you don't want them to so it's yeah. about people are watching you to know how you're going to handle that situation mm. so what we want is people to be able to handle you know and the emotion that we experience when we do fail is shame you know, mm. it's humiliation. And, you know, even in your podcast intro, Eloise, I heard you talk about your vulnerability hangover. So it made me think <laughs> that you're possibly a little bit of a Brene Brown fan and how she <laughs> talks to... Massive. The, the, the Massive. Notion, Guilty. Notion, notion of, of the way that we deal with shame. And we talk mm. a lot about that in the schools that we work with as well. Yeah. Because what you want is for people to see failure as a signpost. Mm. We want them to see as when I, it's a signal that I need to act in some way. Mm. So for kids, we want them to see that, you know, if I am out in, in the yard at recess and someone takes my ball and I snap and I push them over, mm. we don't want them to see that as a signal to either hate themselves about mm. it, to mm. hate the other kid for getting them in trouble, to hate the teacher for catching them. Uh, mm. to lie about it, to pretend it didn't happen or to run away and hide in the toilets. Mm. We want them to see it as a signal that says, oh, that, oh, the reason I feel bad is because that's shame and I feel that when I make a mistake. It's mm. a signal that says act, mm. you know, do something, which means help the kid up, <laughs> mm. dust them off, say <laughs> yeah. sorry, take them to the taps, get them a drink, pat them on the head and make sure they're okay. Mm. And when they do that, they get a smile on their face at the end rather than a detention. Mm. Yeah. And so I think that in our organisations, we have to ask ourselves, what do people do when they're in shame? Mm. You know, when they're embarrassed, when their vulnerability has been tested because they were out there in front of everyone and they messed up. You know, um, how do they react to that? And does it end up in a situation where we get to thank and congratulate them for reading the sign? Mm. Or are we trying to rescue them from attacking mm. other people, attacking themselves, hitting yeah. the bottle, you know, on a Friday night to try and not feel this way for a while or calling in sick mm. the next day and just withdrawing from our whole environment. And we need yeah. to make it clear that when, so, you know, I knew that as a, as a principal, the most, one of the most important things that I could do is when I did make, up, make, make a mistake, and I did lots, <laughs> um, is to just stand in front of my, my staff and say, you know, hey, this thing that we did a couple of weeks ago and the whole thing backfired, you know, my fault. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, what I'm going to do about that is I'm going to remove that procedure or policy or program um, that we know fails, uh, or I'm going to correct the way that I'm implementing that or the, you know, the way that I'm behaving. Um, I'm going to correct that. Sorry about mm. that. My, my bad. Let's keep going. Mm. And I know that when I left, you know, my principal positions, I used to get feedback that I thought I was doing really profound educational stuff. And, um, and my people used to just tell me that, you know, the thing they appreciated most about my work was that I was prepared to admit it when I screwed up and that they don't <laughs> yeah. find many people who do that. Well, yeah. and I think that that's probably the most noble thing, though, isn't it, is that, that, that you can apologise when you and acknowledge and, and publicly announce that, hey, this, is, this was my mistake and, but this is how we're going to move forward from here. Yep. And, yeah, yeah, I think that's really. Some, I think that's so powerful in in every area. I think it's it's one of the most liberating things that a leader can do. Mm. Yeah, you know, it liberates yourself. It makes it okay to feel the 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 um feel the pressure of leadership and screw up. 
mm. and it makes it okay for everyone else to work right to the edges of their of their capacities, knowing that on the edges is where you're likely to screw up. But you're also mm. likely to do your best stuff. Yeah, totally. And that's you know, like that's so true. Eloise, yeah, Eloise, your work, you know, your your history as an Olympian is all about that. You know, putting yourself out there in front of the best in the world and being prepared not to win. Yeah, you know, that's and... that's massive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean that's um, it's I guess failing over and over again throughout my career has taught me so much, and it's and I guess I'm I'm I can honestly say that I'm not afraid to fail anymore. Yeah. Um, because I know how much how how much further it's taking me forward. Every time I've failed, I've learned something. I've I've you know I've grown in some way. In reading your book, Adam, I, I picked up on something that's really consistent with um, what Eloise embodies with her, her running, and that is about the power of focusing on the process and um, not being attached to the outcome. And yeah. could you could you speak to your personal experience of of realizing the power of that and what that's done for you? Yeah, um, I, I tell educators, I think that as educators and I think as, uh, as people, I certainly think as athletes, we hang ourselves on the outcome. Mm. So, you know, but I mean, the truth is, let's say a game of football that you lose by one point or a game of basketball that you lose by one point with a buzzer beater, the difference between you and your team and the other team is it's nothing. Mm. You know, um, so to compare ourselves is to decide that we're winners or losers based on no difference. It, you know, yeah. measurably apart from a tiny bit of luck in the last second of the game mm. is just doesn't make any sense really. It's illogical. Mm. So I teach teachers that it's really important that they don't um, also hang themselves on whether something works, whether a lesson works or not. It's not about whether if, this, the, if I do this, the kids will behave. No, you could be brilliant and the kids will still mm. play up. Yeah. And it's like in a classroom. You can also be terrible and get away with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's that great, there's that great <laughs> basketball quote, which I'll probably butcher here about you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. Yeah, that's and right. Yeah. I feel like that's um, that's quite relevant to you know to life, and it's like well, you got to be prepared to take the shot and yeah. be prepared for that. Well, actually, Michael Jordan said it, said another one in in his recent Netflix series was, "Why would I worry about missing a shot that I haven't taken yet?" And yeah. I thought that that was so powerful as well mm. in terms of fearing what might happen if you don't do something or if you do do something. Um, and, and that comes back down to the to process over outcome, not worrying about what the outcome will be, just following a process and, and yeah. just being curious. Yeah. I think it's funny, the, the Jordan word. ones, yeah, the curiosity thing. Yeah. 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 You know, it'll be what it'll be. You know, um, we've just got to have a, a put in the conditions in place to see if we can be successful. I think the Jordan one. I think it was thirty. I think his quote on that is that it was thirty-eight times. I think he was he was he was notorious for for hitting game-winning buzzer beaters to to win. Yeah. I think it was said it was thirty-eight times in his career he was given that game-winning shot and missed. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. No one, no one remembers talk, those apart from him. No, but I've talked I've talked with kids about how could you imagine though that you know they get down to they call that time out with four seconds to go and you've missed the last two or three. Mm. You know. And the coach is setting the play that's going to have you. T- and you must be sitting there going, oh, man, could we just get Scotty Pippen to take this shot today? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he, you know, yeah, he was always like, no, I've done the work. I've, I'm yeah. you know, oh, for this. Let's take the shot and be curious about whether it lands or not. Yeah, and that, that speaks so directly to what confidence is, right? Confidence is 
self-talk that you actually believe like mm. it's it's grounded and it's credible like it's grounded and yeah. i've done the work i know that i'm the best person here to take this shot and that doesn't mean it's going to go in but i'm betting on yeah. me and i think you know having that knowing that you've earned the right to actually say yeah back give me yeah, back, give me the ball i've yeah. got as good a chance as anyone i think you know that that's that's the mechanism of confidence right it's like you you do it's got to be credible, but you've also got to got to feed that self talk that fuels it around, um, uh, you know, choosing in that moment to say, "Yeah, I'm pass it here, give me a go." Yeah, um, yeah. Hearing that and, voice, hearing that voice, and, and deciding whether that belief that that voice is speaking to you about is useful or not is really important. And so, when you're standing there in that pressure environment, whether it's you know. Trying to trying to hit a boundary off the last ball of a cricket match to win it yeah. or not. You know, if you stand the game, there's no way you can hit this. Well, that's fine. That might be true. You know, it's not yeah. useful. Mm. Yeah. No, exactly just, right. I've got this. I've got this. Yeah. You know, that's right. If you, but if he bowls that side off, it's going over point. If he bowls short, it's going over. It's going over uh, over cow corner. You know, yeah. All right. That that's useful. I'm ready. Let's go. Yeah. You know, yeah. Might not work, but it's useful to think that way. It gives you a chance. Yeah. That's yeah, right. That's it. And that's the key is that it gives you a chance. Adam, you yeah. talked a lot in your book, Restoring Teaching, about effective yep. statements. What are mm. they and, and how can we use them? Yeah. So I guess effective statements are useful in terms of building culture, I think, because culture for me, um, the, well, the, every bit of research I keep, you know, piling together around cultures and the way that they operate and the way that they form is that the language is the most single powerful determinant of it. Mm-hmm. So the things that the leaders of the culture say become the culture and the people that grow in that culture eventually start to pick up the language of that culture again. So, you know, if, um, and I spoke to um, many years ago to um, Mandawar Yunipingu, his, his wife, um, Yalmay, was a, an employee at my school. Mandawar was ailing and was coming into town and was um, for his dialysis treatment. And between treatments, he'd sit in my office. He's a former principal and an Australian of the year. And, you know, he's just sitting there, you know. Yeah. So I'm picking his brain about how to, you know, how to work with a school of 60% Indigenous kids. And, mm. and I, got, I floated this theory that language is an input and an output of culture. Mm. You know, and he said, yeah, that's exactly right. He said the biggest, one of the biggest threats that we face in terms of the erosion of the Indigenous culture in Australia is that the old people have stopped telling the young people the stories. Mm. So they're now growing in a culture of the words that they do hear. And one of his, you know, he said it was, you know, so that's American gangster crap. <laughs> you know, so yeah. a lot of Indigenous kids walking around with their hats on backwards and in, in NBA singlets um, because that, they're the words they hear. That's their culture now. Yeah. You know? um, so an effective statement is about saying I'm going to be intentional about the words that I'm putting in. I'm not just going to let them happen. I'm not just going to let them flow out of my mouth. So the example I always use is, if I'm in a school, and this took effort for me, if I'm in a school and I see a kid drop a piece of rubbish on the ground, the old me would say, hey, you, pick that up. Mm-hmm. The new me says, disappointed to see you do that, put it in the bin. So it costs me about half a second. Mm-hmm. But if you're not a sociopath, then I'll test this with you. What's the word in my second statement that you heard me say the loudest? Disappointed. Yeah. So this, yes, we passed the test. <laughs> yes. Well done. <laughs> now I'm not a sociopath. <laughs> We're fit to host this podcast. That's good. Oh, what a you know, if someone who you're invested in says they're disappointed, you hear that. 
Yeah. But it acts two parts of your brain, the limbic system and the neocortex, so the feeling and the thinking part of your brain get ignited mm. together and deep learning happens. So what happens, the kid not only picks up the piece of paper because there's a higher likelihood when you enact all of their brain that they'll comply, but they have a little moment when they go, what? My behaviour affected you? Mm. Me dropping a piece of rubbish made you disappointed? Mm. And when on the other side of that you can tell kids that you're delighted when you do something, then you're training them for what kinds of behaviours will contribute to a culture that, that, that they're making a, an encar- mm. a, a contribution on the encouragement side rather yeah. than the tolerate side. Yeah. Um, it is so, so powerful when... Because yeah. you know, And it sounds, so, it sounds like nothing is just to say disappointed in the middle of that pick up the rubbish thing. But when I ask a teacher how many times in a day would you have a chance to do that, Mm. I usually say like 100, you know, and yeah. I say, well, let's say you got half of them. Let's say it was 50. Yeah. Um, if you have 40 teachers in a school, that's 2,000 a day. Mm. That's 10,000 a week. That's 100,000 a term. That's 400,000 opportunities in a year to teach empathy to that kid and to everyone mm. who heard it. Yeah. 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 And so you want to get empathy built. You can't, you can't teach it to kids on a Wednesday arvo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to build empathic people, you got to drop in a culture where there's four hundred thousand reminders a year. Totally, yeah. uh, I love that. That speaks so strongly to the power of language and the power of our inter interconnectedness. You know, the fact that what you do affects me, and it's not about that being theoretical. It's not about you know um, saying, "Hey, remember to go about this day with empathy because what you do affects other people." You know, it's, it's actually practical. practical. It's like in this moment, I'm going to use a, one additional word in my sentence mm-hmm. and that yeah. is going to multiply and, and create um, a culture because, you know, yeah. that's, it just makes total sense. And it's like, wow, it makes me think and, you know, in any part of life, um, think more carefully about the language the language we choose, but also how we how we use it. You know, what 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 is the language achieving? Is the language yep. just maintaining a status quo, or is the language actually moving towards something better? Yeah. So I think yeah, I think one of the things we underestimate is the the power of that language when you're the leader of the culture. Mm. So, you know, whether you're a teacher leading a class or whether you're a parent leading a family or whether you're a CEO leading a business, your, the contribution of your language is the culture. And I think that we make a mistake about that in, in particularly in corporate cultures where we think we, we don't think of language and culture to get together. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but that, if we're going to think about language, we'll think about it separately to culture. Mm. And it's probably one of the things that I definitely picked up from, um, you know, many years of working with Indigenous people in Australia is that they frame everything in terms of language and culture. And I'll go, so, you know, we, my first teaching job, we had a Wednesday afternoons were language and culture afternoons where the elders would come into the community and, you know, um, and work with the Aboriginal kids on... Um, on their language and culture mm. and then, and I remember one day one of them you know talking to them about what we were doing and and I said so those words and because I was speaking in Aboriginal languages and I'm trying to catch up and work out what they're saying I've got no idea mm. and, you know and they're saying you've got to learn it because the language is the culture and I go mm. right and, go, and the culture is the language mm. I'm like right you know and yeah. so they're not distinguishable from each other they're subsets of each other yeah and um so we've got to see our work around choosing the right words as being leadership of culture. It's strategy. 
Mm. You know, if you want a culture, you can't. If you want to improve the culture of your organisation, I don't believe you can do it without improving your language. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, the, the, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about all of the examples that this is relevant to my life and even um, my career in terms of being on teams, Australian teams, and when the, the culture mm. is set from the top, the administrators, the coaches, the ones that you look up to in those in those hours of need where you know you're you're in a vulnerable um, situation or coming into a big race, you need your, the support from the top to be. Um, to be strong and to to have that that culture and the language to be strong and yeah I, I can look, honestly look back on a number of instances now where when that have when they've nailed that they've truly nailed that everyone on the team seems the energy lifts there's there's a there's a thriving about the, the entire team coming together and and doing what we do best. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's leaders who can reflect on in that moment where there's a chance for them to be limbic, to be, you know, emotional about the way that they're working. Mm. Um, what, are the, what are the choices they make? Have they pre-made that choice? Mm. So they know that when I get to this level of frustration, this is what I say. And if you think about what's more likely to help a person perform, you know, most people perform, you know, is it going to be the per- – let's say you skip a training session – you know, is it the person that berates you in front of everybody and tells you what a low life you really are? Because low mm. lives are more likely to come to training, aren't they? You know, so let's slap that <laughs> label on you. You know, um, or is it the person that just stands there and says, you know, given your potential, I'm, I'm shattered that you would throw away the chance at another training session. Yeah, yeah, and see, that's the let, right there. Let that sit in the air. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I felt that. I was like, "Sorry, Adam, I'll be there next time." Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but that's, you know, to me, like because I, I do so much work on this side of things with with athletes, I often have this experience where something that the athlete has heard from a well-meaning coach parent supporter has actually invariably created a a limitation and it's exactly this idea it's that their language has been a little bit sloppy and in their language has has their language has created um created um a a scar so to speak and it's not even like you know a malicious thing it's just a it's just the the words actually do make a difference And, yeah. and so what's so interesting about what you're saying is how much better we can all get at using them <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, and kind of um, speaking in a way that um, gives life to people and gives life to culture and um, everyone benefits from that, you know. So mm-hmm. I think it's something we can all reflect on is how am I using my words to move um, help people move in, in a positive direction as opposed to, and also be more aware of how might I, um, without meaning to, be negatively impacting people with, mm. with words. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think so it's sort of like, you're, like you're pointing out there, those words also are the words that we tell ourselves. Mm, totally. Yeah. If, if you're going to encourage someone to, to, you know, if someone gave us the job of um, helping someone lose weight, would we tell them to stand in front of the mirror every morning and call themselves a fat so-and-so so they'll never be anything? Mm. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't say that out loud. No. But how many, of us, how many of us would do that when standing in front of a mirror? And we yeah. do. Yeah. So we, we let those negative words about ourselves become our labels and our labels become 
prophecies that we live up to. Mm. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, I like the work of, you know, James Clear and his stuff yeah. with Atomic Habits and I'm a bit of a fan of that and that story about how when he's helping people lose weight, he just wants them to first of all become the sort of person who goes to the gym. Totally. Just totally. become a gym goer. So yeah. he puts out this challenge where they have to um, go to the gym every morning for five days in a row but they're not allowed to exercise. Yeah. They just got to get up and go. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. he said, nobody can do it. Nobody can, nobody can get up and walk in and on the fifth day still go, I'm really, I'm, I might as well just spend five minutes on the treading. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So everyone yeah. exceeds expectations when it's about just becoming the person who goes to the gym. It's not about whether you're doing as much as everybody else. It's, you know, mm. it's become the person. Who, yeah. who does that? And if you say, "Well, I'm a gym goer," or you know, "I'm I'm I'm living a healthy life today," you know, mm. that saying that to yourself in the mirror is more likely to help you make better choices. So yeah. true. And I can think of so many times where you know, friends that I've known have been labelled lazy, and and that, as you say, it becomes a self limiting belief. And yeah. it, it limits them from, from reaching their full potential. But that's the beauty of growth mindset is that once you acknowledge that that's a self-limiting belief and you, you actually start to believe that actually I can change, it's okay. I've, I had a moment yeah. of laziness here. I didn't make it to that session or I slept in on that morning when I was meant to be at the gym. I had a, we all have moments of laziness. Um, yeah. But then believing and changing that mindset about um, and believing that you can grow and change is, is so critical and, and crucial to, to being able to change. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like that. You're really speaking to the power of identity, right? And that that I think James Clare talks about in these terms as well, that it's like the the link between your identity and your actions and, you know, every action is a vote towards the type of person you yeah. um, you want to be or, you you know, you see yourself to be. And and so I think that's what's missed so often in this is we can focus so much on the, on the behaviours that we want and actually miss the fact that what we do consistently lines up with who we see ourselves to be and, and that we can actually help ourselves to almost upgrade our identity and we can help others to reinforce a, a more positive, true identity that enables them to move towards potential. Because I just don't, I don't think... Um, I think it's very difficult anyway for someone to to fully explore their potential if they don't see themselves as a type of person who is either worthy of that or is capable of um, contributing some good things to the world. You know, I think it does all boil down to identity mm-hmm. and I think so too. Uh, yeah, I go back to a fabulous teacher that I worked with, and she was handed. She was fabulous, and therefore she attracts the bad class. You know, the teacher, the, the principal was <laughs> yeah. keen to put, you know, all those troublesome kids that were coming through were going to her, and they arrived at her, and these kids, you know, had identity. They knew they were the bad kids. You know, mm-hmm. and from day one, she just said, "You guys, I'm so happy to have you guys here. You are the. Did you know that when we got the class lists, uh, I sat in the staff meeting. I said, "This is unreal. I've got the best behaved." class in the school i yeah, have boom. and I'm like no we're not and they go yes you are have a look at this combination this is the combination of these kids these kids are going to be so much fun they're the best behaved class in the school and all <laughs> the other teachers were so jealous and and she just sold this story to these kids that they were yeah. the best behaved class in the school what do you yeah. know well, yeah <laughs> they, there you go. They, they just became that because that's now their label that they're living up to and yeah. I think that's part of that i think that connects back to that notion of choosing beliefs that are useful rather than true yeah. Now, yeah. She might 
be able to sit there and start meeting and complain about her class and go out to the kids and go, right, you lot, you know, I know that in the past you've been bad, but, you know, you're not pulling that for me. And, you know, um, but she just said, no, I'm going to put a new label on them. Yeah. And yeah. they, you know, it's not true at the time, but it's useful, mm. really useful. Yeah. And those kids had ended up adopting that behaviour together and um, they were a wonderful little unit that did great stuff yeah. right across the whole year just because she slapped that label across a lot of them, which I thought was fabulous. Yeah. So good. That's awesome. Um, uh, Adam, I, I'm conscious in your book, you know, <laughs> there's a little surprise ending that I won't give away to people, but um, I want to talk to you about, um, without giving it away, I want to. I want to talk to you about the real. This might reason, be difficult. The real reason. <laughs> the real reason you wrote the book. Like, what's really your heart with it? And um, and because I think it maps really. It's really important in this conversation about identity. Um, yeah. So, could you speak to you know your ultimate um, hope for for how people can change through yeah. through your work? The book's got two big aims. So one is to restore teaching as a, as a profession that people want to do and that people have a really high level of respect for. Number two is to do it through these restorative practices, mm. you know, um, artfully designed for schools rather than for, say, juvenile diversion programs and things like that. And I think that what I, what I want teachers to understand is that their job is not to squeeze a decent test score out of a kid. Mm. Um, their job is to put them on a better life trajectory Mm. And sometimes that better life trajectory results in them staying on the planet. Mm. You know, so when I mentioned before kids who, you know, not just kids but adults who when they make mistakes, they don't take that weight of shame from around their neck. They just, mm. they just carry it with them. Mm. I, I've had it with young people who are carrying all this shame from mistakes they've made that are unresolved mm. and they end up taking the really short trip in their minds from I screwed up to I'm a screw-up, mm. to everyone thinks I'm a screw-up, to everyone would be better off without this screw-up, to a really, mm. really bad decision. Mm. And a friend of mine's son, as a 19-year-old, um, made that decision. Mm. And when I unpacked with him his history and the research behind the book and the way we're growing young people, uh, Matt just sat there with me going, oh, that, that's Zach, that's mm. Zach, that's exactly how he handled it, that's exactly what he did. You know, I had a good relationship with him, but he, he still didn't want to tell me that he had speeding fines and that he borrowed, he loaned his car to, a, to, a, to the wrong mate who crashed it and that things were not good with his girlfriend. And, you know, um, and eventually he just, you know, he wrote in his letter note that he left behind that he felt that he, you know, this world just wasn't for him. Mm. You know, yeah. this is a popular young man, good sportsman, lots of friends, you know. Yeah. Um, and he didn't feel like he blocked. Yeah. You know, and that, how how and could that, he think that? You know, yeah. Um, we've got to raise young people who know that when there's difficulty, when the, even if it's difficulty they cause, there's mm. always something you can do and it's not yeah. that. Yeah. There's always yeah. a way to fix it. And it Because they've had yeah. practice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just so, so important. Like there's, there's nothing more important, I don't think, than... than creating a world where people realize that they are worthy that they're already enough and they actually can't do anything to lose that yeah like nothing they can do no mistake that they can make can disqualify them from being yeah being from enough belonging. Being, from belonging yeah exactly being yeah. worthy of, yeah. of belonging and 
you know, and coming back to what we talked about before about language, and I know we talked about it in the context of culture and um, and habits and um, performance, but you know, like there's no more important place than the power of language and cultivating an identity that that knows that you know you belong, mm-hmm. knows that there's you are unique and that you have a um, unique contribution to make um, here yeah. and. You know, and that um, you know, I think the more we can think about everything that we do through a through a lens of how is this how is this um, helping people around me to to be reminded of their inherent worth. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I think and I think that's such an important point, Rory, about that notion. I think that because we know the statistics around suicide and males in particular mm-hmm. of that feeling of never being enough, never being good mm-hmm. enough. Mm. You know, that language, and we've heard it a million times around cricket clubs of, you know, even attaching our self-worth to the kind of partner we attach, you know, uh, that we find, you know, about, oh, you're batting out of your crease. Yeah. Mm. I was telling a man, a young man, that you're only, you know, doing well if you can attach, Mm. if you can find yourself a partner that's better looking than you. Really? Yeah. That's how you you can be enough? You know, no, you're enough without a partner at all, you know. And finding a partner is not about finding someone that people will be impressed by. It's about finding someone who you can be with, you yes. know, yeah. and connect with. You know, um, we've got to stop teaching our, you know, our boys in particular. But you know, for our girls, it's a it's a completely different set of stories that are wrong. Um, but our boys, yeah. we've got to stop teaching them that story. Mm. And on that note, Adam, what I want to try to um, make this really practical for um, parents and for teenagers who are listening to this. Um, so I've got two kind of related questions on that. One is what's your advice to parents and, and students who are kind of in that exam phase of high school going into HSC? You know, I work with a lot of these, um, a lot of teenagers in that situation. And I'm always struck by just how, how stressful a time it, it becomes, and um, and so firstly, I'll ask the second part in a minute. Um, firstly, what would you what would you say to teenagers and parents when about how to view how to view school and exams and that? From a really practical point of view, I would say that a parent's job is to tell their year twelve student um, as many times as they can across the year that they're a great kid, that they're a great mm. student, and whatever the results are, if they do their best, they're pretty happy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think the other bit of language that they can input to the relationship there is about reminding their kids there's never been a better time to screw up year twelve. Yeah. There really hasn't. Yeah. There's there's yeah. more there's more pathways for kids beyond seventeen that have nothing to do with their year twelve score than there ever has been. So we want you to give this your absolute best shot. But what we do know is that if they go into exams in fear, they'll go they'll perform poorly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So they've got yeah. to go in with that mindset that, you know what, I've done the, that, that thing about you know, just facing that last ball of a cricket match. It's just, you know, I've done the work. You know? yeah. Yeah. If this question shows up, I'll do this. If this question shows up, I'll do that. The outcome will take care of itself. I'm curious about the score. That's curious. Such good yeah. advice. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, it's a different kettle of fish, but it's something that I really appreciate about my upbringing and my parents. And I, they were undoubtedly encouraging no matter what 
it didn't matter yeah. whether I ran fast or slow or won or lost. It, it, it was a great race to them and they loved watching me. And uh, did you have fun? Yeah. Well, that's yeah. the main thing. And, yeah. you know, I'm so grateful for that mm. because, you know, nobody put more pressure on me than, than myself. And if I had have had yeah. that other layer of... of yeah, you don't need more. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so that's, that's such good yeah. advice. Yeah. yeah. The second part of the question is going beyond exams and kind of talking about what we were talking about before with um, how young people see themselves. What would your advice be to young people and parents to help them build uh, that identity we've been talking about where they realise that they belong and that nothing can change that? What can they practically I think, do? I think there's a really important piece for parents here about letting go of the outcome of what they want their kid to be. Mm. Yeah, and so we sort of we pre when we predetermine what sort of year twelve score or what sort of university course or what sort of career we want our young people to take, we strive towards that and we start rowing in a different direction to our kid, mm. you know, because they've got unique gifts. You know, um, you know, uh, we laugh sometimes about even my son, who's you know, he's sixteen now, and he, um, you know, grew up around me, so because of that, he loved cricket. You know, um, but over time he got to being 200 centimetres tall and that really helps in football, you know. And so he's playing, you know, Australian rules football and Mm -hmm. loves it and gave cricket up. And how there was just a moment for me, oh, that hurts. <laughs> you know, because I've, I've, you know, I've only played cricket now for, I don't know, it's only been about 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> or been involved in cricket for 40 years. You know, so that, that's a real heartbreaker for me. But you know what? Just, just sit with the heartbreak for a minute and let it go. It doesn't matter that he turns out like me. Yeah, you know, that what matters is that he's lit up by whatever it is that he wants to do. Yeah. And so that turns out to be a bit of AFL football, a bit of collecting fish and a bit of playing bass guitar. Yeah, um, cool. And somewhere in the end he's going to end up in some sort of psychology, sports like sort of course thing, which would never be what I would do. And that's cool. <laughs> what I've got to do is jump on and help him row towards that version of himself. Yeah. And, um, and at times, I mean, I've got to push him as well. But, yeah. um, but we're, we're going to go in the direction that's the best version of him. Yeah. That's awesome. Because I think that's, you know, to me, that's the point that I want to keep reiterating is that everyone is unique and everyone has their own, um, their own path to explore. And no one's done that before. No one's actually, no yeah. one's got your combination of... Um, of capacities and potentials in the exact same way and no one's no one's wired up the way you are and it's about really giving yourself permission to be curious about exploring what that could look like for you and and then surrounding yourself with people that um support you and heading in that direction whatever that is for you you know um yeah i couldn't agree more yeah oh that's so refreshing adam um did you have any more any final final questions before we go to Rory's wrap? Do we want to ask about high encouragement, high challenge? Let's touch on high encouragement, high challenge. <laughs> Adam. Adam. So, uh, what, high encouragement, high challenge. I loved that piece in your book where you talk about, yep. um, as, you know, I think a lot of what we've talked about today could be misunderstood if we didn't talk about this, and that is yep. at Yes, we want to affirm and encourage and kind of give permission for people to fail and, and things like that. But that's not to say we're not challenging people. Could you speak to that sort of ratio of um, high encouragement, high challenge? Mm. 
Well, I think that we can, we've got, you know, four possible scenarios around high encouragement and challenge. So we can have high challenge and low encouragement. Mm -hmm. You know, we could have the opposite. You know, we could have neither. Mm -hmm. And then we could have both. So it's the high challenge, high support, high encouragement environments that I think people thrive in because they feel like you're on the same team. Yeah. So I say that when the challenge is high, um, but the support is low, we tend to do things to people. We bark at them. Mm -hmm. You know, you do, and that's that coach that says, you know, you so-and-so, you do this, you do it my way, my way, the highway. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's nothing there, if there's no challenge and no support, then we kind of, we say that, that we, we call that the not box. There's not much you're doing there. You're just like, it's just lazy. Mm -hmm. um, if, you're, if you're high support, you know, high encouragement, but the low challenge, then we say that you're doing things for people all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, someone else is doing the heavy lifting. Yeah. And in the end, you get found out because your capacity doesn't get built. But if there's a high support and high encouragement, um, but a high challenge environment as well that comes with mm -hmm. that, people genuinely get the sense that you're working with them. Yeah. You know, yeah. common goal. And, um, and that's where people want to be. So it's funny, we sometimes think that we, we make an assumption that people don't want to be challenged. Mm -hmm. um, the truth is that the best teachers we remember when we were at school were firm and fair. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah, it's yeah. not the it's, it's it's not the softies that you walked all over, yeah. and it's not the mega strict ones that yelled at you all the time. It's the nah. ones that got the combo just right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, that's yeah, it's such a refreshing perspective because you know I really think it's just the same with coaching. It's the same with any sort of um, supportive relationship where it's actually it's about seeing the potential in someone and caring so much about them that you actually do anything to help them believe what you see yeah. <laughs> you know yeah, right. and um and so it is this togetherness but it's also there's a challenge like hey i know you've got more in you like let's let's work together to um until you till you see and prove to yourself actually that you know that Spot you can on. believe that yeah. too um, i think that's what you articulated always about people you, your parents you know were, were kind of they were there with you they were doing it with you they were encouraging mm. you to get where you want to be mm. um, they weren't trying to make you go somewhere you didn't want to go and they weren't disinterested yeah, so, uh, they were on there with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's awesome, Adam. Thank you so much. Um, before we get to Rory's wrap, um, where can people follow along with what you're doing and also get your book? Like, um, yeah, you tell us. So a couple of websites that people can go to. One is if they're interested from a schools perspective, um, they can head to realschools.com.au and um, see all of the work that we do in a multitude of different ways with schools. And there's a little page there for books and you can find the Restoring Teaching book and purchase it from there. And they can go to my website as well at adamvoigt.com.au and they'll find the same sort of pathway to be able to get their hands on Restoring Teaching. Awesome. And having read it, like it's such a worthwhile read, such so refreshing. Um, Final Thanks, question man. before we go to Rory's wrap, Adam. Um, how did you, like, you, you took a leap out of being a principal and into doing your own thing. Like, can you just touch on that for us? Like, how, what, what's been driving you to do, to uh, do look, that? I think it was, uh, for the first time, like, when, when I opened the new school, um, that was an enormous challenge. And then it probably, you know, came out of, uh, you know, when you're a principal in a, in a government education department, I sort of had people then in the department talking to me about my next role and it was mm. sort of as a district supervisor of schools and, and I, for the first time in my career, the next step looked horrible. Mm. <laughs> I thought, mm. I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to walk around telling schools what they're doing wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I thought, well, what would I do? And I had to, cr and I ended up 
you know, creating a pathway for myself. And I remember the night before I resigned, um, my wife, Anthea, said to me, are you sure you want to do this because you love your job? Mm. And I said, yeah, actually, I had a hunch that I had to leave while I loved it. Mm. Yeah, that that was actually really important for the next step to be successful. And um, I had a a Seth's blog uh, sort of printed out on my... um, on my wall that said once the once the water's deep enough to be over your head does the depth really matter yeah yeah love it and so (laughs) just just swim just swim yeah (laughs) and so um so i had the option to take leave without pay and to stay on the principal books for a while 12 they said you know they sort of i think they thought that after 12 months adam will have this out of his system and he'll be right (laughs) um but i I, I knocked it back and resigned um Mm. and um and as much as I'm glad I did, um, I still look back on my work in in, in schools when, um, when I was a principal, uh, uh, just uh, uh, so fondly, it's my life's work. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It's inspiring. Yeah. Um, well, Adam, are you ready for Rory's rap? Go for it, mate. Adam, honestly, I'm just, I find this conversation so refreshing. Everything you talk about is about, it's got the human beings yeah. at the centre. It's got our... Um, so much truth about how we're connected, how we're interdependent and how through relationships we become together. And, you know, making that, you do such a good job of making that really practical and really um, really applied with no, um, no fluff, <laughs> you know, nothing. You're not, you're not just... I haven't got much fun. No, you knock the fluff out of me, mate. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, you know, and it just rings so true. Like what you, um, what you, what you represent is like human-centered, interconnected, um, wise approach to, mm-hmm. to you know doing life together and being alongside each other on the journey, being there for each other, continually challenging but also affirming each other to um, to each pursue what we're capable of and. Yeah, the education space is so much better for having you in it and um, people, anyone who has the chance to get their hands on your book or or any of your other work and and to sort of um, breathe in that perspective that you bring, uh, I think will will benefit greatly. So thanks for for what you're doing in this this space. It is so important. I've learned so much. Like just as a parent at the, if, two kids one school age i've just learned so much so thank you yeah and like as as we're walking on, into their bedroom is that right eloise now walking into their bedroom when it's a mess now and telling them you're disappointed <laughs> yeah <laughs> totally <laughs> exactly yeah just being in touch with my feelings just, how do i feel about this just teaching empathy yeah there you go um but you know like you just you capture all those things you know you, you capture empathy you capture the power of how we speak to ourselves and and how we um, how we support others, and I just think you know, there's so much we can learn from from your message, and individually and also collectively. And it's definitely something that Eloise and I um, will bring into you know the talks we do at schools. We're, we're talking to young people, and you know your practical advice around how they can have a, a renewed perspective on where they're at in life. And mm. there's no better time to screw up your HSC. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's um. It's a key line. That's my takeout. Nothing ever, nothing else away, kids. So it's all for an hour, Rory, and that's what you got, eh? I've summed it. I've summed it up as 
as a metaphor for life too, it's like, hey, there's no better time to give yourself permission to take that shot and see yeah. if it works and yeah. be curious and learn and go again. Like, you know, whether that's yeah. HSC or, you know, whatever, whatever anyone's doing, I think that the freedom to just the, the internal freedom to be curious and to learn, to grow and to explore together is, is what you help, help us to, to practically do. So thanks for, thanks for doing what you're doing and, and resigning all those years ago to carve out your own path so that you could do it. <laughs> oh, thank you to you both. I'm, I'm not great with compliments, but I'm just learning to just say thank you and not wave them away at all. But, um, <laughs> Love it. argue with them so um yeah i'll just try and take my own medicine and um, finish yeah. with absolutely. Receive it. Yeah.